For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. He said, you going to tell us what we want to know? And I looked at him. So I ain't got nothing to tell you. He said, okay. <laughs> you going to talk before the day is over with. And he put the cow prod back in the bag and walked back out. This is Death, Sex, and Money. That is not my future. I'm not going to be buried in a grave. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. It's a booty call. Seriously? And need to talk about more. You steal from buddies? What kind of a man does that make you? I'm Anna Sale. And this is Daryl Cannon. Growing up was beautiful. It was much more peaceful back then. You very seldom seen the police. Uh, all areas was, was well-mannered. There was no drugs on the streets uh, back then. Those were carefree times. Daryl grew up on the south side of Chicago. He was born there in 1951. He talked about these early memories with my friend Noelle King. She's a reporter for the podcast Planet Money. How far from where we are right now did you grow up? A few miles. Um, it's called uh, Woodlawn area, and that's around 63rd Street. Matter of fact, Lou Ross uh, had a song out about uh, 63rd Street. Can you tell me how the song went? I don't know it. Uh, he talked about, uh, they say this is a big, big city, but I live in the poorest part. I know I'm on a dead-end street in a city without a heart. Noelle visited Daryl at his home in Chicago earlier this year. She was there to report a story about police torture and about an attempt by the city of Chicago to make amends for it. Decades ago, the police tortured Daryl while he was being questioned about a crime. Earlier this year, along with 56 other men, Daryl received a financial settlement from the city. He got a check. The city of Chicago called it reparations. For Noelle, that word stood out. 
I think about race in America all the time. I'm biracial. My dad was black. My mom is white. And I think of reparations as an attempt to fix things that have gone wrong with either money or with an acknowledgement that terrible things have happened. But no one ever really expects that reparations are going to be granted. So when the city of Chicago went ahead and used this word, I was astonished. And I went to Chicago to ask these men how they felt about getting the money. And what I learned is they appreciated getting the money, but it certainly didn't seem to lead to anything like forgiveness, especially not for someone like Daryl Cannon. That's why I wanted to share Daryl's story with you. It's about money and money's limits to deal with and heal a gross injustice. Noelle first told Daryl's story in a Planet Money episode. I've asked her to share more of Daryl's story because I think it's really important. But it's not a simple story. Daryl was a victim of police torture. At the same time, as he told Noelle, I've never been an angel. A warning, this episode includes graphic descriptions of physical torture. I, I wanted to to be in a gang because of some of my friends. In fact, the majority of my friends were in one, and I liked the camaraderie that they had with each other. As a kid, Daryl Cannon says he was kind of a mama's boy. His brothers and sisters were all older than him, so when they left the house, it was just him and his mom. He remembers they used to go to church together every Sunday. But by the time Daryl was a teenager, gangs had started carving up the streets in his neighborhood. He decided to join one. They were called the Blackstone Rangers. I joined on my own. I wasn't forced to join a gang or no peer pressure. It was just something I wanted to do, and I did it. How'd your mom feel about that? She didn't. She didn't like it at all. And in fact, um, when I got away from the house, I would put my black scarf on my head, which is signify I'm I'm a ranger. But as soon as I got near the house, I'd take it off. Because if I didn't, my mama would knock it off. She would beat you? Oh, who? <laughs> my mama didn't play. My mama didn't play. But that did not stop Daryl. His involvement in the gang quickly escalated. The Blackstone Rangers were considered to be the most dangerous, deadliest gang in the city of Chicago. I was considered to be a shooter. Why were you considered a shooter? Because I, I, I was shoot. You had, you, because you had good aim or because oh, you had a gun? Oh, yes. I was extremely accurate. When Daryl was 15 years old, he shot and wounded two rival gang members. He went to juvenile detention. And then in 1971, when Daryl was 20, he was convicted of shooting and killing a store owner. He was sent to prison where he was locked up for more than a decade. Daryl was released on parole in 1983. By then, the Blackstone Rangers had become the El Rukans, a highly organized gang whose members, according to the FBI, were suspected of committing several hundred murders. When he got out of prison, Daryl moved into an apartment building that the gang owned. And then on November 2nd, 1983, just before dawn, Daryl woke up to this bang, bang, bang at his door. Anytime you hear some banging like that, you know it's got to be police. And who are you living with it at that time? Um, at that time, I had a common-law wife named Carla. Um, she and I was living together. She rushed to the door because she knew it was the police, too. And were you scared? Did you, did you say, Carla, don't, don't go get the door? Or was it better for her to get the door? Mm-hmm. They gave me time to hide. 
And I could hear them um, telling her to get out the way. They called her a bunch of bees, uh, everything else, and they was rushing through the house uh, looking for me, and I was hid in the closet. How did you hide in the closet? Just hid in the closet and put clothes in front of me. Um, and at first, they opened the closet door, and then he left the door, and he thought I wasn't in there. And then another one of them happened to move the clothes to the side, and there I was. The cops were there to arrest Daryl for murder. The body of a drug dealer who'd been shot in the head had been found a week before. Someone in Daryl's gang had said Daryl was involved. The detective who found Daryl in the closet pointed his gun at Daryl and told him, lay down on the floor. And Daryl says right at that moment, he wasn't especially scared, but his cat was. Uh, I had named my cat Killo, Jet Black. Killer went up the wall. <laughs> White folks scared to live in daylight, so I'd kill her. Killer would run everywhere. <laughs> Daryl laughs when he remembers this, and that's something he actually did a lot. He laughed remembering his worst memories. But he says at the time, he was furious. I mean, they called me a nigger so much that you would have thought that was my name. Um, I had only seen on TV um, about the South, the Klans, and I, I still really couldn't identify with it because it was so far away. But that day, November the 2nd, 1983, they gave me a firsthand crash course of how black people felt in the South because these these detectives, make no mistakes about it, they were extremely racist, extremely racist. Had any white person called you the N-word Mm-mm. before? That Mm-mm. was the first time? First time. 1983? 1983. Uh, first time in my life being called a nigger by a white person. If I hadn't had the handcuffs on, I'd bust them right in the mouth. I was mad. The cops took Daryl downstairs and put him in the police car. As they drove him to the police station, Daryl says one of the cops, a detective named Peter Dignan, started hitting him on the knee with a heavy black flashlight. Peter Dignan started asking me questions about a murder that happened uh, in, in one of our areas. And because uh, I wouldn't answer his question, he started beating, nigga, what I say? You hear me, you hear me talking to you? And he started beating me on my knee. And uh, it hurt it beyond the shower down. Were you tempted to, I mean, did, did you know anything about the crime? Did you, could you have said, you know, I, well, I didn't do it, but I know who did? Uh, if I had known, I wouldn't have told him. Why? Because I, I, didn't, I wasn't raised like that. You know, that uh, just because they don't snatch you for what somebody else did, you want to quickly tell them, no, 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 that wasn't under me. It was some somebody else. No, no, I wasn't raised that way. I was raised that if I do know, shh, mom's the word. You know, if you end up being charged with this, hopefully uh, your lawyer will be able to prove that you had nothing to do with it. When Daryl got to the police station, he assumed he'd have a chance to call his lawyer. This was the routine. Instead, they took him in handcuffs and sat him in an interview room. And uh, uh, I was in there, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes maybe, before one of them came in with a shopping bag. And that was my first time seeing the cattle prowl. 
How did you know it was a cattle prod? I wouldn't know what that looks like. I had seen long cattle prods when I was in St. Charles. St. Charles is um, a penitentiary for kids. And I worked on the farm, and I had seen huge ones. I never knew that they made one this small. What is it? What does it look like? It's about the size of my microphone, too. Yeah, and it has two prongs uh, that stick out. And the prongs are the ones that, when they touch you with it, it, it'll shock you. Daryl says the cop that came into the room took the cattle prod out of the bag and implied it would be used on him if he didn't talk. Did you think that he was serious right then? I don't know. I probably had mixed emotions about whether or not um, they intended to to stick me with that caliper or something. And if they did, I said, well, this is probably where they're going to do it at, if they do it. But Daryl was wrong. Coming up, what happened after he was put back into a cop car and driven away from the station. This is not my first experience with police beating on me. You know, they used to take me down 11th Street and hit me upside the head with a phone book. You know, so I've had that before, but nothing to the extent that these sadistic son of a guns did. a lot from you since the results of the election came in last week. It's been an emotional time. To me, this election was about who gets to feel like they belong in America in 2016. And the results just flipped a deep sense of alienation from one side to the other. And so we decided to ask you what you wish other Americans understood about you, but don't. What I want people to understand... I wish other people understood that... I want to be able to continue to work hard and pay my taxes. It doesn't mean that I'm a racist or a bigot. I'm just feeling so sad today. It can be really lonely not seeing many people like me succeed. They don't know that I'm not only legal, but American. We're still collecting your responses. Record a voice memo or write an email about the thing you want other Americans to understand about you. Send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We're going to be featuring some of your responses and taking your calls live during a special radio call-in show next Tuesday, November 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on wnyc.org. We really hope you'll join us. We need to keep talking about this together. On the next episode... My relationship with porn has evolved. I embrace it pornography and your relationship to it. Over the last few months, you've been sharing how you experience porn, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I remember so clearly the fluttering, sweaty discomfort I felt. I had rich relationships with thousands of willing partners, except that it was all in my imagination. I don't watch it. I don't care if you do. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. And I'm Noelle King, reporter for Planet Money. 
The police officers who arrested Daryl Cannon first took him to a police station on the south side of Chicago. But then, when Daryl didn't confess, three of the officers put him back into an unmarked squad car and drove him southeast. Daryl says the three cops, John Byrne, Peter Dignan, and Charles Grunhard, drove him to a deserted place near some railroad tracks. They got me out the car, and one of the first things they said was, nigga, look around. Nobody's going to hear or see nothing we do to you. And when I looked around, there was nothing but isolated area. Now I started to get concerned. I said, uh-oh, <laughs> now this ain't right at all. They took a shotgun uh, out the trunk of the car. And that's when uh, they said, okay, a nigga, you going to tell us what we want to hear? I said, man, I ain't got nothing to tell you, you know. And that's when uh, Dignan tried to force the shotgun in my mouth, split my lip, and he chipped my two teeth. And then when they had the barrel in my mouth, uh, he said, okay, nigga, you going to tell us what you want to hear? And I'm trying to tell him, I don't know nothing. And then when I said, go ahead, shoot that nigga. And that's when they pulled the trigger. When I heard that trigger uh, click in my mind, my mind told me that he had just blew the back of my head off because my hair stood straight up. And at that point, uh, I was beyond fear. Fear wasn't even uh, an option anymore. To me, I I honestly thought I was going to die. But when that didn't work, they took me around to the side of the detective car and they opened the back door of the detective car and made me turn sideways where my feet was outside the detective car. They pulled my pants and my shorts down. And that's when uh, Sergeant Burns uh, was standing in front of me with that cow prowl and Grunhards came around to the back seat and he pulled my hands up and when he did he jerked my hands my cuffs and I laid down on the back seat and Burns turned the calipro on and stuck to my testicles and the pain that I felt from that was something that I ain't never felt before in my life and in doing so I kicked him, and when I kicked him, uh, I knocked the cattle prow out of his hands, and the back part of the cattle prow came open and the batteries came out. And when he reached down to get the batteries, I tried to kick him in the face. I I just barely missed him. You know, I regret that, too, because if I could have kicked his teeth out or something or or broke his nose or something, uh, I'd have felt much better. Daryl says the torture didn't end there. The cops put the cattle prod back together and kept burning him with it. I yelled so much that I became hoarse. It seemed like an eternity, but it wasn't that long. And finally I said, okay, I'll tell you anything you want to hear. And then they started asking me questions all over again. 
And I said, yeah, 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 that's the way it was. That's the way it was because by then my mind was was so messed up. Daryl confessed. He said he was there when the murder happened, that he didn't pull the trigger, but that he was an accomplice. And then before the cops took him back to the police station, they stopped at a gas station. At the gas station, uh, uh, they said, hey, you want something to drink? Because my throat was dry, and for it to be so cold outside, uh, they thought I wanted coffee. I said, no, 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 give me a pop. I want something cold. And uh, they took my money that they had took from me and bought me a pop (laughs) with my money. Yeah. See, I bought them something, too. They took my money and spent on themselves as well. I mean, they... you You laugh. You can laugh. Yeah, because... It is so sickening that it's comical. When Daryl was finally taken back to the police station, he says he was put in a cell. By that time, it was evening. Almost an entire day had passed since he'd been taken by the police from his apartment. And I laid there on that steel bench in this cell, balled up in a knot, and it seemed like my internal system was still burning from that cattle prowl, my testicles, In that whole area there was burning, burning, you know, like it was a fire inside. Daryl wasn't given a chance to talk to his lawyer until a couple days later. But when he finally did, he told him everything about the arrest, about the torture. And that's when he told me, I want you to, to draw some drawings for me where they took you, who did what, everything. I said, man, I can't draw. He said, give me some stick figures. I said, okay. And that's what I did. But those drawings didn't help, not right away at least. Daryl went to trial. His lawyer told the judge that Daryl's confession had been tortured out of him. They argued it shouldn't be used in court. But the judge turned them down. Daryl's forced confession, that he knew the murder was going to take place and was present while it happened, was used as evidence in court. And because of that, Daryl was found guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. What is going through your head at this point? I'm going to fight this, and sooner or later I'm going to prove my innocence. You didn't get down? You didn't oh, think no. God? Oh, no. Oh, no. Because I understood that uh, if I stop fighting, my life is over. So Daryl didn't let it go. Early on, he submitted a handwritten complaint to the city of Chicago. It detailed what he'd been through. The city gave him a small settlement, $3,000, but it didn't admit to any wrongdoing. And the money didn't mean anything for Darrell's sentence. He was going to stay locked up. Meanwhile, other stories of police torture in Chicago started to emerge. They put a gun to my head. They put a plastic bag over my head. We have ways of making niggers talk. I can feel the vibration coming in, the electricity coming through my body. And he get his nightstick, and he put that nightstick between my legs. And finally they uh, decided to put a plastic typewriter cover over my head. Felt like I was going to die. While looking into these claims, an investigator with the Chicago Police's Office of Professional Standards reopened Daryl's case. And she went on the southeast side of Chicago and kept driving around, driving around, looking at my drawings, and she found the torture site. And when she found it, she called forensic and had them to come out and take pictures. Pictures were exactly like I drew. 
It took years for Daryl's case to work its way back through the system. In 2007, after one of many new hearings, Daryl was released from prison, 24 years after he'd gone in. I often tell people that God has brought me through a, a hell of a, a, a battle that I've had to deal with the death of all my family members. I lost my mother, my father, my grandmother, my son, uh, my brother. Uh, I lost all of them at separate times to the death angel. And it, the the pain... The pain of that and the anger of that never goes away. More than 100 men, most of them black, have come forward with stories similar to Daryl's. City investigators have found that between the 1970s and 1990s, there was systematic torture by police working under a commander named John Burge. In 2010, Burge was sent to prison for lying about the torture. He was released last year. Noel reached out to him, but didn't hear back. The three cops who Daryl says tortured him, they were never punished. The statute of limitations ran out. One of them, Charles Grunhard, has died. Peter Dignan and John Byrne have denied Daryl's account to other reporters. Neither responded to Noel's request for comment. Last year, the city of Chicago approved $5.5 million in reparations for 57 of the men who'd been tortured, including Daryl Cannon. The reparations package also includes psychological counseling, job training, and free tuition at Chicago City Colleges for victims and for their families. And one last thing, the public schools in Chicago are going to teach students in the 8th to 10th grades about the torture. Daryl got his reparations check from the city in January for $97,000. The checks were going to be mailed out, but Daryl wasn't taking any chances. I went and got it. Why? Because I don't trust. <laughs> I don't trust the system. I, I don't want you talking about, we sent it. You haven't gotten it yet. You know, I went in and said, my name is Daryl Cannon, and I'm here to pick up my money. And uh, they in turn said, well, I see your ID. They already knew what money I was talking about. I didn't even have to say torture money. And uh, they, they took that, said, okay, we'll be right back. And the man gave me my check. What did you do with it right then and there? Um, put it in my, my coat pocket, and we left. I went to the bank and put mine in the bank. Put it in uh, savings or checking? Uh, checking. Daryl has spent a lot of the money. He bought a car for himself and one for his wife. He sent his daughter some money. And when his brother died earlier this year, he bought him a nice plot on a hill. Daryl says that's so he can look down on people. Daryl bought his wife a ring, too. We was passing by the diamond place. I said, which one of them look kind of nice to you? And uh, she said, oh, I like that set there because that's a double set. I said, pardon me. I like to have that set there. And her knees got weak. Are you playing? I'm not playing, babe. Give it to her. And it was $1,000. And I paid cash for it. Was that a good feeling? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, I, I've never shied away in saying that the money didn't help. It did help. But it's not a ruling factor. The jobs, the the curriculum, uh, all those things are even more significant because those are things that are ongoing. The money, 97000 is no longer 97000 How much is it now? Um, probably about 
maybe a little over nine grand. A little over nine grand. Yeah. But at least I can go to work every day in a car now that I don't have to worry about smoking or breaking down. Your old car was not... Oh, Lord. The money has allowed me to continue the things that I need to continue. But Daryl also says the money can't change what happened to him. It can't give him back the 24 years he lost. And it doesn't change the way he feels about the officers who tortured him. You know, my lawyers don't like for me to say what I'm getting ready to say, but I still say it anyway. And that is, I cannot stand the air that they breathe. I hate them just that much. Uh, I would love to to use the caliper on any one of them. You wouldn't. Yes, I would. You know, I know it's wrong would to you? say. Yes, yes, yes. Because it was so, so cruel that I would want them to experience what I felt. And I would shock them until one or two things happened. They had a heart attack or the batteries died. I ain't lying. I ain't lying. If it took all day, I'd shh, shh. And I would just continuously do it. You know, some people may want to hear, some people may not want to hear, but I'm going to tell you the truth. That's why I tell all clergymen when they say, son, don't hate like that. You know, uh, let your life go on. Let God hound it, you know. And I'll tell a clergyman quick, I respect what you're saying. God going to do what he does. Daryl Cannon going to do what he does. I hate him. That ain't going to change. That's Daryl Cannon. He lives on Chicago's south side. When he got out of prison, Daryl went to work for Ceasefire. That's an organization that teaches gang members alternatives to violence. He still does some of that work today. A website about the torture victims' cases will be online early next year. It's called the Chicago Torture Archive. Thank you to reporter Noel King and NPR's Planet Money podcast for sharing this story with us. You can find Planet Money on iTunes or anywhere that you get your podcast. Check out their other episodes. One that I really liked from earlier this summer was when Noel reported about a Baltimore neighborhood and how hard it's been for them to get one abandoned building torn down. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Ali Lesperance and Rich Renalik. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. And keep sending us your responses to this election at DeathSexMoney at WNYC.org. Daryl walked me around his house and he showed me some of the things he bought with his reparations money. There was a fancy bed for his little dog. He had a new phone and he showed me one of the cars he bought. What color is that? That's gold? Uh, I like to call it uh, champagne. Champagne? Yes, ma'am. I like that. Very eloquent and uh, nice. That phone is champagne too, isn't it? Almost. You like the color? <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's, it suits the car and the phone, you know, and I like to be kind of co- color coordinated. Suits the man too. Yeah, you know, uh, what can I say? Only in America. <laughs>
I'm Anna Sale. And I'm Noelle King, reporter for Planet Money. And this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. It's Opinion Palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. My team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.